0: Could China attack Taiwan? That's a question that's giving some of us low-level anxiety, and we're going to be talking about it in today's show. I'm Andrew Ryan.
1: I'm Natalie Sell. So let's first take a look at the stories on our radar this week.
2: Lawmakers have sent a bill that combats foreign election interference directly to a second reading. The bill was proposed after self-proclaimed Chinese spy Wang Liqiang applied for asylum in Australia, saying that he had taken part in Chinese espionage operations in Taiwan. Major questions linger over the validity of Wang's story, and Taiwan's government says it's asked Australia to share information. There's been a 20% jump this year in the number of Hong Kong residents applying to move to Taiwan. With the unrest in Hong Kong, Taiwan's universities are also welcoming more visiting students from Hong Kong. A Taiwanese gymnast has a move named after her. The International Gymnastics Federation officially recognized what's called the Ding Tien, a split leap to ring position with a 180-degree turn. Ding is the first Taiwanese gymnast to have this honor. Beetle-nut is a chewable stimulant popular in Taiwan but linked to cancer. Residents of Nantou County in central Taiwan are now putting the discarded leaves to a healthy use, creating sustainable bowls and dishes. And under the radar this week is 73-year-old Li Da. He has spent years pushing his trash cart across Taiwan, picking up whatever litter he can find along the way. Despite his age, Lin is now on his 10th trash-collecting expedition, crossing long distances on foot just to make Taiwan a cleaner place.
0: This week we learned that the military is doubling up on protection of the president that's in the event of an attack on taiwan's central command let's have a look
1: cm-34 armored vehicles made their debut in may at taiwan's annual Guang military exercises this month six of them will be added to a fleet commission to protect the president in the event of an attack that will make the fleet stronger than ever the CM-34 armored vehicles have three-meter machine guns that can fire at night and up to three kilometers away. They will join six clouded Leopard vehicles that are already protecting the president. The military says the new CM-34 vehicles will be ready to evacuate the president in the event that China tries to take out Taiwan's central command. China sees Taiwan as part of its territory and has not renounced the use of force to unify the two sides. China's People's Liberation Army is about eight times the size of Taiwan's army. Earlier today, I spoke with top defense expert Danjiang University professor Alexander Huang. Huang is the chairman of the Council on Strategic and Wargaming Studies. He explained why it's so important to protect the president.
3: The modern uh, nature of warfare had determined that country... Uh, or uh, adversaries can use a long-range assault to decapitate the command center, uh, which includes the president and all key national security advisors. Um, People believe that if you wipe out uh, the head and the body, no matter how strong the body uh, would be, uh, the, the outcome has been decided. There are people arguing that if China can uh, kill Taiwan in one shot, uh, which means that make a decisive outcome appear within 72 hours, then uh, they can prevent foreign intervention at all because the international community would not be able to react
1: So under what conditions do you think China would make that move?
3: I think China uh, has a long agenda for itself. Um, China uh, needs to reach a a benchmark called uh, the level of moderate prosperity uh, in all sectors, uh, which means that China would not have any county below the poverty line. They set the goal for 2020, and by 2021, China will celebrate the centennial of the Communist Party, and 2022 will be the end of the five-year term of the uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping. So if he wanted to um, renew his uh, uh, position, um, both in party and in government, um, he needs a peaceful environment. Uh, a um, unplanned military conflict, uh, even uh, local or regional, would probably disrupt his plan.
1: What do you think is Taiwan's best defense against China?
3: I think our best defense is to make sure that we have a peaceful and calm political process. Setting the example, showing Beijing that no matter what happened, we, we have a very successful, very peaceful political process. We elect our own president. Every time we peacefully, um, uh, calmly uh, elect our national leader, uh, is another proof that democracy can work in Taiwan and in the ethnic Chinese community.
0: You'll want to check out Nally's full interview with Professor Huang. We'll have that for you on the Taiwan Insider Facebook page and on YouTube. This coming Tuesday, December 10th, is Human Rights Day. It's also the 40th anniversary of one of the most dramatic events in Taiwan's path to democracy, the Kaohsiung Incident, and that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Forty years ago, on December tenth, 1979, democracy activists held a rally in Kaohsiung, southern Taiwan. It was called later on the Kaohsiung Incident. Now, they didn't realize it at the time, but it would become one of the most important moments in Taiwan's road to democracy. And that's the subject of today's Simon Explained.
1: Great. So you have 60 seconds to explain that. Do you want, are you ready? I think so all right go all right first some
0: background in 1979 taiwan was under martial law and single party rule it was governed by the guomindang or kmt which retreated from china to taiwan in the 1940s now the government had tight control on the media but that didn't stop activists from starting the formosa magazine in 1979 in may of that year now the magazine did very well its second and third issues selling almost hundred thousand copies and that got the authorities attention Now The magazine arranged a Human Rights Day celebration on December 10th that year. The military police and the army surrounded the demonstrators. Clashes broke out and the authorities used the incident as an excuse to arrest almost all of the well-known opposition leaders. Now the eight prominent leaders were known as the Kaohsiung Eight. They were sentenced, they were tried in military court, sentenced to 12 years to life in prison. Another three dozen people were also charged. Now the incident led to a decade of protests, more arrests, And it galvanized the pro democracy movement. And it led to the founding of the Democratic Progressive Party.
1: Very good, Andrew. All right. And that was very interesting. And I know that a lot of those um, eight would become famous politicians later, right? That's right.
0: right. Actually, they were all known uh, for being part of what was called the Wai movement, so outside of the party, so AKA not the KMT. Uh, And they actually would go on to form their own party, as I mentioned. And seven of the eight would become part of the DPP. All of them would go into politics or government in one uh, way or another. So I want to show you some of them. Of course, in the center there, that's Annette Liu, who is former vice president. She almost ran for president this year. On the right, that's Chen Zhu. She was uh, the mayor of Kaohsiung for a while and also is currently the secretary general to the president. And then on the left, we have Sheming uh who is a former DPP chairman and also Uh, He was a lawmaker as well.
1: Some of the human rights lawyers also became very famous and powerful. That's
0: right. So the lawyers for the Kaohsiung Eight and for others uh, also would go on to do big things. In the center there, that's uh, Chen Shui-bian, who's a former president, a two-term president. On the right is Frank Xie, a former premier uh, who's currently uh, Taiwan's representative to Japan. And on the left there is the current premier, Su Zeng-chang. So they all uh, went on to go into government.
1: Yes, it's very um, interesting and fascinating. Thank you very much, Andrew. And that is our Taiwan Explained for this week. In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to be talking about Taiwan's Olympic athletes who will be competing in Tokyo next summer. Now, recently, um, we had an amazing gymnast make an amazing move that we'll be seeing in just a moment, Ding Tien. And I want to ask you guys before we watch that video, when was the last, she'll be competing in the Olympics, by the way. Mm -hmm. When is the last time we sent a female gymnast to the Olympics? What year was it?
0: I don't think we ever did. Did we? Go for it. I'm going to say never. Never, okay. I'm going to say
1: 1968.
4: 1968.
1: Okay, let's take a look first at this video.
4: Watch out, 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Taiwan has a gymnastics star heading your way. Ding Tian is only 17 years old, but she's the first female Taiwanese gymnast to qualify for the Olympics since 1968 in Mexico. Now she's coming armed with another superlative. She has a move named after her. That makes her the first Taiwanese gymnast with that honor. The move is called the Ding Tian Split Leap to Ring Position with 180-degree turn. And this is what it looks like. jumps into the air and does splits while turning mid-air. The International Gymnastics Federation has officially added the move to the code of points for women's gymnastics. The maneuver was assigned a difficulty of D on a scale from A to J, with J being the most difficult. Successful execution of the move is worth 0. 0.4 points.
1: Since I jumped so well, I decided to throw in a 180 degree turn. Then I realized no one has done this move before.
4: Ding's coach Tsai heng says that getting the move recognized was a necessity.
3: If a move isn't recognized by the gymnastics rulebook, then it doesn't count for points. So we had to apply to make it official.
4: Ding says that her next move is to take a medal at the Olympics.
0: That is so cool. I want a move named after
1: him. <laughs> <laughs> she's only 17 years old. She's already marking a legacy. Isn't that amazing?
0: That's really impressive.
1: So um, the last time we sent a female gymnast, right? You said never. Yes. And
0: I'm you said 1968.
1: <laughs> I said 1968. Okay. Let's take a look at the answer.
4: Wow. You are right, no. Leslie. 1968. The guy who did that video sounded quite like me, so I think, <laughs> I think <laughs> that you helped a You remember 51
1: bit. years and you subtracted?
0: Oh uh, yeah. Good,
1: good math.
4: <laughs> I
0: think he's cheating, but I'm not sure. <laughs> That's about time you got one right. Very nice. good. Very good.
1: <laughs> okay, so we're also sending a gymnastics team, a male gymnastics team, to the Olympics, and our star is the pommel horse prince, Li Zhukai. You guys mm-hmm. have heard of him? Yeah. Actually, he became famous in um, 2005 when the documentary came out called Boys Jump, mm-hmm. and he was the one who was jumping... Um, doing lots of stunts near his mother's market stall to attract business.
2: Oh. So he was
1: like wow. really cute in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, he's been doing very well on the world stage. How many gold medals has he won in global competitions <sighs> oh, so far? man.
4: I know he got one for sure. Uh-huh. That's during the Universade in Taipei. Right. Okay. I'm sure it's more. Boy is talented.
0: he said very good. He's been doing very well. So, uh, you know what, I'm going to say five.
1: Five, okay. Five. How about you?
0: I'm going to double it. I'm going to say ten.
1: Ten. Wow. Okay, let's take a look at the answer.
0: Seven. Whoa. Seven. Pretty halfway, good, right? Meach halfway, Meet halfway. Nicely done.
1: Okay. Now, we also have a swimmer, a very young, talented swimmer, 20-year-old Wang Xinghao, who qualified in August at the Hong Kong Open, and he qualified doing the individual medley. He also broke uh, Taiwan's record in the meantime. And the individual 200-meter medley is a lap of butterfly, freestyle, backstroke, and breaststroke. How fast did he swim? Oh come
0: <laughs> on! <laughs> you said 200 meters. Right, four four different, four so different 50, styles. 50. fifty fifty. I'm gonna say you first. <laughs> I
4: wanna say oh my goodness, two minutes.
1: Okay.
0: I'm going to say less than that. I think it's going to be about a minute and (laughs) (laughs) thirty-eight.
1: Let's take a look at the
0: answer. Oh, one fifty-nine, okay. So, uh, oh, I was yeah, a little, little fast. Fire. I was just basing it on how, how fast I think. <laughs> I'm yeah.
1: on fire today. <laughs> right, so, I don't know why I just found it just sounded so fast.
4: You've been real fast. <laughs> My goodness. Why aren't you in these teams? <laughs> then again, you'd be Team USA. Be in- yeah, I wouldn't be in there. No.
1: <laughs> okay, one last question. So, in the last Olympics, we sent 57 athletes to compete in 18 sports. How many medals did we win?
0: Wait, wait, wait. This was again? in
1: Rio. Uh-huh. In 2016, we sent 57 athletes to compete in 18 sports. How many medals did we win? Ooh, 18 um,
0: sports. Hmm, I'm going to say four. Four, okay. Like, are you just saying like gold or
4: gold, oh, gold, wow. silver, bronze? Um, and bronze? I'm, I'm say talking about
1: um, gold, silver, and bronze altogether. together.
4: I'm going to say six. I'm going to say 27. I don't know why, but that 27? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> um,
1: that's a what good number, very nice number. I like number. that positive thinking. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm on
2: fire good. today. I'm sticking with it. All okay,
1: right. let's take a look. We won three. Okay, so oh, that's the archery see. team. <laughs> not see, too bad. I was
0: so close, and then you pulled me off of my good number. Now
1: you make it seem so bad. My answer was it's a multiple so of three. <laughs> maybe next year. All right, maybe next year. So um, the three in the picture was the women's archery team. They won bronze, and they're going back this year with the men's archery team. We also won two in weightlifting, a gold and bronze. That's
0: right. Taiwan's very good at weightlifting, very good at taekwondo. Yes. Very good at archery.
1: Right. Ooh. Last time was the first time we didn't win in taekwondo for quite a few times. Oh, so wow. Huh. Anyways, we have a lot of uh, great athletes to watch, and we'll be telling you more about them in uh, months to come. But that is Taiwan by Number for this week.
4: This week on Hashtag Taiwan, Lady Gaga. Now, she can sing, she can act, and she found herself in some controversy this week. What happened? Well, being the big international star that Lady Gaga is, she's got fans on Weibo, which is the huge Chinese social media platform. Now, one user with the handle Lady Gaga China Official took to that platform and vented some of her dissatisfaction with Gaga's recent actions.
5: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's right.
4: And uh, it's a long rant, so I'm going to give you the abridged version. Lady Gaga China official said, I have stood by Lady Gaga for eight years. I discovered that Lady Gaga followed a Hong Kong activist on social media. I never thought there would be a day where I'd unfollow Lady Gaga. Now, Mm. the implication here is that following a Hong Kong activist is a bad thing. And the activist in question is this person, Emily Chang. Pharmacist, Hong Kong citizen, and book lover, but on her tagline, she also has Free Hong Kong Revolution of Our Age, which Mm. has become something of a motto for the protesters over in Hong Kong, and she is indeed followed by Lady Gaga. Now, the rant did it end there. In fact, some excerpts go on to talk about Lady Gaga's three meetings with the Dalai Lama, but being this is hashtag Taiwan, You can imagine that this user was not very happy with Lady Gaga's stance on Taiwan either.
0: Uh She said
4: the Lady Gaga official website lists Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau as separate countries. And with regards to the movie starring Gaga having a Taiwanese independence flag in it, I told myself that was a producer's decision. What
0: what, what movie is that?
1: Yeah, I know. I don't know. She had.
0: So
4: here we go to the next part, right? Interesting. Now, Lady Gaga starred in a movie with. Bradley Cooper, whom I admire, by the way, called A Star is Born. Now, that's the only movie where Gaga has a film credit in a starring role. There was nothing about an independence flag in there, or a Taiwanese flag at least, but I did find this in 2012 when Lady Gaga (laughs) came for a concert in Taiwan. She rocked the Taiwanese flag (laughs) on a motorcycle. Not only that, but when she landed and gave interviews, she explicitly referred to Taiwan as a country, saying, this is my first time in Taiwan, and your country is beautiful. Now, I couldn't imagine that made the user any happier, But and the rest of the rant goes on to talk about how she's swearing off Gaga. He or she is swearing off Gaga, and they don't want anything to do with them anymore. They're done with the disillusion, and just talk about
0: disenchantment. So they're not Gaga for Gaga.
4: They are not no <laughs> longer are they Gaga <laughs> for Gaga.
1: And they are so sensitive. L- mm. Any little move that um, someone makes, they they think it has. It personal was just a
4: tiny follow. In fact, on China. Um, there was a German DJ. His name is Zed. He followed the creators of South Park, and that got him a lifetime ban from China for performing wow. in China ever. Wow. So this is a very sensitive topic over there, and you never know what's going to get you a ban or. You know, decries from China.
0: It used to be you had to do a movie like Seven Years in Tibet, you know, in order to get in trouble. (laughs) Now, just following somebody Mm -hmm. on social media. That's right. Okay.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Leslie. And that is hashtag Taiwan for this week. Do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us for this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media.
1: Yes, leave a comment below. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So.
0: I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
1: In about a month, Taiwan is going to elect its next president. Now how will that choice affect Taiwan's relations with China and national security? Well, today I speak with a top defense expert, Professor Alexander Huang of Danjiang University. He's also the chairman of the Council on Strategic and Wargaming Studies. Well, Professor Huang, we learned um, in the news this week that Taiwan is doubling its strength in protecting the president at this Mm -hmm. time. Why at this time do you think that uh, there is a danger of of attack from China?
3: Well, I think it's a general acknowledgement that in modern warfare, especially after the Persian Gulf War in 1991, all modern uh, military assault that can lead to decisive decision of who is the winner, who is the loser, usually takes about only three weeks. We no longer see the World War I and World War II, like uh, several years of massive mobilization and massive casualties. Right now, it's always over the horizon, long range precision attack. So the modern uh, nature of warfare had determined that country uh, or uh, adversaries can use a long range assault to decapitate the command center, uh, which includes the president and all key national security advisors. Um, People believe that if you wipe out uh, the head and the body, no matter how strong the body uh, would be, the outcome has been decided. So how to deal with a possible future uh, Chinese long-range assault against our command and control center to protect the security of the president and make sure that the government uh, continuity uh, can survive a military conflict has become a key issue for all the defense planners and all uh, mm. makers uh, of national security policy.
1: Okay, That's because our presidential election, right?
3: Not necessarily for the election, but for a confronting adversaries. Uh, you got to have always Keep in mind that these are possibilities.
1: So how likely do you think an attack from China would be, a um, military attack?
3: I think to be honest, um, the viable option, um, military option, uh, and um, keep the negative side effect away would probably the decapitation. Uh, Because China, once China decided to use force against Taiwan, they cannot wait until the international intervention. And we all know that the United States, no matter how many forces are now deployed in the Indo-Pacific region, it takes time to come to Taiwan's rescue. So there are people arguing that if China can kill Taiwan in one shot, uh, which means that make a decisive outcome appear within 72 hours, then uh, they can prevent foreign intervention at all because the international community would not be able to react. Taking the example of uh, Crimea, uh, of uh, Ukraine, uh, the, uh, the Russian troops uh, got in uh, and uh, took over almost within two days, and um, even before NATO or European Union convene any meeting to react to uh, the situation, a fait complete is already there in Crimea. So uh, there are lessons for Taiwan to learn, um, and so this is um, a specific concern of all our national security planning since uh, even before last presidency.
1: So under what conditions do you think China would make that move?
3: I think China uh, has a long agenda for itself. Um, China uh, needs to reach a a benchmark called uh, the level of moderate prosperity uh, in all sectors, uh, which means that China would not have any county below the poverty line. They set the goal for 2020, and by 2021, China will celebrate the centennial of the Communist Party, and 2022 will be the end of the five year term of the Gen- uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping. So, if he wanted to renew his uh, position, um, both in party and in government, he needs a peaceful environment. Uh, a um, unplanned military conflict, uh, even uh, local or regional, would probably disrupt his plan. Uh, so in China's interest, at least in the next few years, uh, it's better to keep uh, the uh, peripheral relatively peaceful, hmm. including the Korean Peninsula.
5: Hmm.
3: By saying that, I mean there's no incentives for China. <laughs> to wage a war against Taiwan unless I think you wanted to know what would happen or the extreme conditions that China would do it. I think it's, uh, China had made it very clear that if if Taiwan continue, uh to walk away uh, from China, uh, the nation movement in Taiwan or uh, foreign involvement. Um, a Chinese diplomat in Washington had suggested several years ago that when American warships dock at Kaohsiung port, that would be the time for military action by China. Um, so I I think only through um, you know extreme um, political difficulties uh, or a breakaway in any kind of you know political a uh, taboo or cross so, the so-called red line,
1: mm-hmm. then
3: China would be forced to use force against Taiwan.
1: I see. Well, what about, you know, we have two, canida- two major candidates vying mm-hmm. uh, for the election. Yes. So, can you describe what you think will happen with our relations with China if um, either of these candidates are elected? Say, pr- President Taing Wen, if she gets reelected, how do you foresee uh, China relations um, developing?
3: I think um, the viewers, the audience had already witnessed what had happened under Tsai Ing-wen in the past three and a half years of this kind of relationship between Taiwan and China. Uh, so if she got re-elected, that means we will have eight years of the, the same situation. Uh, Do you think
1: it will get worse?
3: Um, I guess so.
1: I mean, in terms of they're trying to isolate Taiwan or take away allies, or do you think that they would be open at all to communicating with the DPP?
3: A re-election of President Tsai may mean eight years of uh, no communication between uh, government uh, in Beijing and Taipei, no official contact, no regular institutionalized negotiations. Uh, it may mean that Taiwan lose more diplomatic ally. Uh, we have lost seven in the past three and a half years. Uh, if President Tsai get re-elected, we don't know how many of the remaining 15 would last. Uh, so this is a challenge that Taiwan voters need to think very hard uh, and make their choice. If the other person, uh, Mayor Han Gouyu, got elected, I would say that China would at least take a wait-and-see approach and see whether a change of government in Taiwan uh, would lead to a more uh, moderate policy uh, from Taiwan toward China. And China may test uh, the new Taiwan government and see if more peaceful, more uh, incentives uh, provided by Beijing uh, would have a better result uh, receiving by Taiwan public. I would say that um, there is a sharp difference on the position of mainland China policy. Han Kuo-yu believed that there is a vaguely uh, agreed uh, 92 consensus. President Tsai strongly opposed uh, uh, at least using that term. So um, Beijing would definitely react differently. So we'll see what what happens. I think if China needs a peaceful environment in the next four or five years, if Taiwan needs a break from uh, suffering uh, of diplomatic ally loss, I think uh, there will be a relatively calm period.
1: So people are concerned that Mayor Han is too close to China. There's that perception and that perhaps um, Taiwan may compromise its sovereignty if, if there's mm. something, you know, there have been mention of a peace accord or, or you know, that kind of a possibility if Mayor Han becomes president. So what do you think about that concern that people have?
3: Uh, it's natural that Taiwan people, in general terms, have such uh, anxiety over any deal between Taiwan and China. You know, I have to say that there is no reason for Han Kuo-yu to deal with China by giving up sovereignty. For what? It's not necessary. Taiwan, no matter who is the president, have maintained a very close relationship with the United States. Taiwan knows, no matter who, blue or green, that the United States is the only provider of our Taiwan's uh, defense articles and services. Uh, major weapon systems, Uh, and uh, we are a um, so-called, we have a shared value, Uh, and we like to call us the like-minded countries between Taiwan and the United States. So there is no reason, I I, I understand that um, the international press, uh, the general public, wanted simple answers. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Who who is uh, pro-U.S., who is Mm -hmm. pro-China? I think um, it is not a crime to try to manage a peaceful relationship uh, and maintain direct communication with Beijing. Uh, Calling someone doesn't mean that you should marry someone. Uh, Just keep uh, the business going um, and um, Make sure that governments on two sides can resolve problems through negotiations. If you cut off the telephone line, if you do not respond to any phone calls, uh, when there is other potential danger, that miscalculation uh, could happen. Uh, even you stand strong, but without you know regular communication, uh, you might invite you know, unexpected incidents Mm. in the future.
1: So there's also been a lot of concern about China's interference in our election. You know, China has for many years tried to interfere through throwing missiles and, and, you know, other different ways. What about this time? What do you see um, happening in this election as to China's trying to influence the election?
3: Oh, China's influence campaign uh, over Taiwan's politics or Taiwan elections, or, mm, for more conventional wisdom, is like um, you know, lobbying missiles to the waters near Taiwan, threatening Taiwan people by official statement, mm-hmm. uh, or funnel money to support a uh, certain candidate uh, to make sure that they have more campaign funding. These are all in the past. We we don't know whether it will appear again this time. But a new phenomenon is that um, the the cyber mm-hmm. world uh, kick in this time, and kick in strongly. Uh, there are you know different cases that people wanted to allege that China had intervened Taiwan's politics or campaign process by providing uh, fake news or feeding untrue uh, information to certain uh, website or try to monitor Taiwan's uh, cyber communications uh, and see if they can intervene. Um, but I would say uh, from the outset that if China is using cyber uh, channels or, or, or platforms, to intervene Taiwan's political process, uh, it would be uh, against Taiwan, not against any particular campaign or person. Um, Because China's purpose is very clear, is to make sure that Taiwan's democracy fail or Taiwan cannot perform well in the democratic process.
1: Okay, well thank you very much, um, Professor. I've been speaking with Professor Alexander Huang of Danjiang University. He's also the chairman of the Council on Strategic and Wargaming Studies. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Natalie So.
0: Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is...
2: John Van Trieste.
0: And the destination...
2: February 28th, 1947. This is the 1947 Overture, a piece by the late Taiwanese composer Xiao Tai Ran. It's a meditation on a century of Taiwanese history, centered on February 28, 1947, the day when modern Taiwan entered its darkest period. Despite early hopes for a new start after 50 years of Japanese rule, Taiwan's people found themselves under a new kind of oppression. Under the new nationalist government of the Republic of China, Taiwan faced problems like corruption and economic troubles, and Taiwan's people were marginalized. On February 28, 1947, Taiwan's anger boiled over. The government stalled for time until it could divert enough troops to Taiwan. What followed, once everything was ready, was a rampage that took in large swaths of the island and left a generation scarred. Today, these events are known by the date on which the protests started February 28th, or simply 228. Yang Zhenlong, writer and executive director of the Memorial Foundation of 228, grew up in one family that the 228 massacre hit hard. Last week, he guided us through the events of 228 and told us of his family's private traumas. His grandfather disappeared for three months. His father was abducted three times and held for ransom. And one of his uncles was simply tied to a stone slab with two others and tossed into the sea. They'd done nothing wrong, but as teachers, doctors, and city councillors, they were the face of a local Taiwanese order the government hoped to crush. Though his grandfather and father both survived their ordeals, their experiences left huge, invisible wounds. In the dangerous political climate that followed the massacres, few dared to breathe a word about what had happened. Mr. Yang grew up in a post-228 world that had seemingly been wiped clean of the entire affair. He knew nothing of what had happened. Today, he joins us again to tell us how he learned about Taiwan's unspeakable secret and to offer his critiques of how the government is dealing with the trauma 70 years on.
5: <laughs>
2: Growing up, there were a few odd details that didn't quite add up. Occasionally, he says, he would overhear an older person sighing about 228 and how awful it had been. But for him, this was puzzling. To him, after all, 228 was still only a number. He gathered that something terrible must have happened, but imagined it had only been a local affair, something bad that had only hit his hometown, the northern port city of Keelung. Then there was his grandmother, Every year, in March, her mood would grow somber. She would gaze at a portrait of his uncle and begin sobbing. Mr. Yang had no idea how his uncle had died. He remembers his grandmother mumbling to herself words he couldn't understand. With just these fragments to go on, the scale and severity of what had happened escaped him. The silence lasted over 40 years from the time the massacres died down.
5: In 1987,
2: the period of martial law and political oppression that had shortly followed 228 came to an end. It was only then that talk of 228 began to shift into the open, and Mr. Yang first heard the story that had been kept from him all his life. The Truth came out in 1989, when his father opened up, and now that it was safe, revealed what had been secret. Among the victims of this 228 massacre people were now discussing, there were three of Mr. Yang's family members. By then, a movement to rehabilitate victims and vindicate their memories was underway. It was in this movement that Mr. Yang began a lifelong journey to seek justice and stand up for other victims' families. (laughs) At first, the work was difficult. In 1990, around the time Mr. Yang got involved, those who dared to talk about 228 openly were on the fringes. The taboo against remembering was still strong. Many victims' families he found voiced support for his work, but said they didn't want to come forward. He says it wasn't until the end of the 1990s that this concern for privacy began to change. The 30 years since the Rehabilitation Movement started have brought important progress in some areas. Now, Mr. Yang says, the trauma is out in the open, and no one would dare reject calls for a full account of the truth behind 228. February 28th is a national holiday now, and there are memorials across Taiwan. There have been more concrete steps towards facing up to the past, too, including payments of compensation to victims' relatives. As Mr. Yang sees it, though, there are still serious problems with the official treatment of
5: 228. A 2006
2: report published by Mr. Yang's foundation placed responsibility for 228 on the shoulders of Chiang Kai-shek, then chairman of the nationalist government, and soon-to-be president. But 11 years later, Chang is still remembered, in Mr. Yang's words, like a god, inside Taipei's Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. To Mr. Yang, this is unacceptable. (laughs) The report also lays out responsibility on a smaller scale, naming those responsible for violence and abuse and those who helped them in the process. But he says that none of these names ever seem to appear at any 228 memorial. Mr. Young uses a phrase he often finds himself repeating. There are only ever victims, never perpetrators. An essential part of getting to the truth behind the massacre involves putting those names out there and acknowledging what they did. The goal is not to punish or take revenge, Mr. Young says. The vast majority of those involved are long gone anyway. But avoidance or whitewashing isn't
5: justice. Mr.
2: Yang says that the government has not made the 2006 report an official document, and this creates problems. Without official status, for instance, the report can't be quoted or used in textbooks leaving the next generation to read only a general description of 228 in their classes. And other issues aside, without official recognition for the report, how can the goal of transitional justice be achieved, he asks. In the days after this interview, the government announced a planned transformation of Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, and headlines said that the president herself had spoken about the need to present 228's perpetrators as well as its victims. It seems there's a chance that some of the changes Mr. Yang has called for could be coming soon. There's still much more to be done though. Mr. Yang believes that the way other countries have dealt with their own traumas offer lessons that can help Taiwan continue to make progress. South Korea with its 1980 Gwangju uprising is one example. There are also the examples of Germany and South Africa. Germany, he says, bravely faces up to its past. And he says that perpetrators of Nazi crimes are still being prosecuted, no matter how old they may be or how much time may have passed. He also looks to South Africa's post-Apartheid truth and reconciliation process, which offers a confessional model that he says has an almost religious quality to it. One thing that's certain is that 70 years on, what was once Taiwan's unspeakable secret is now out in the open. This year, the massacre's 70th anniversary is being marked not just in Taiwan, but worldwide. Taiwanese Americans have held a memorial ceremony in California. There's been an international 228 academic conference. And this year we'll also see the release of a new book about this dark chapter. It will be written in French. Hopefully, after so much pain, efforts like these, both local and international, will get more people to remember what happened, and also bring some measure of healing. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time.
0: Forty years ago, on December tenth, 1979, democracy activists held a rally in Kaohsiung, southern Taiwan. It was called later on the Kaohsiung Incident. Now, they didn't realize it at the time, but it would become one of the most important moments in Taiwan's road to democracy. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained.
1: Great. So you have 60 seconds to explain that. Are you ready? I think so. All right. Go.
0: All right. First, some background. In 1979, Taiwan was under martial law and single-party rule. It was governed by the Kuomintang, or KMT, which retreated from China to Taiwan in the 1940s. Now, the government had tight control on the media, but that didn't stop activists from starting the Formosa magazine in 1979, in May of that year. Now, the magazine did very well, its second and third issues selling almost 100,000 copies, and that got the authorities' attention. Now, the magazine arranged a Human Rights Day celebration on December 10th, that year. The military police and the army surrounded the demonstrators, clashes broke out and the authorities used the incident to, as an excuse to arrest almost all of the well-known opposition leaders. Now the eight prominent leaders were known as the Kaohsiung Eight. They were sentenced, they were tried in military court, sentenced to 12 years to life in prison. Another three dozen people were also charged. Now the incident led to a decade of protests, more arrests and it galvanized the pro-democracy movement. And it led to the founding of the Democratic Progressive Party.
1: Very good, Andrew. All right. And That was very interesting. And I know that a lot of those um, eight would become famous politicians later, That's
0: right? That's right. Actually, they were all known uh, for being part of what was called the Dang Wai Movement, so outside of the party, so a.k.a. not the KMT. Uh, and they actually would go on to form their own party, as I mentioned. And seven of the eight would become part of the DPP all of them would go into politics or government in one uh, way or another. So I want to show you some of them. Of course, in the center there, that's Annette Liu, who is former vice president. She almost ran for president this year. On the right, that's Chen Zhu. She was uh, the mayor of Kaohsiung for a while and also is currently the secretary general to the president. And then on the left, we have Shimingda, De, uh, who is a former DPP chairman. And also, uh, he was a lawmaker as well.
1: Some yep. of the human rights lawyers also became very famous and powerful. That's
0: right. So the lawyers for the Kaohsiung Eight and for others uh, also would go on to do big things. In the center there, that's uh, Chen Shui-bian, who's a former president, a two-term president. On the right is Frank Xie, former premier uh, who is currently uh, Taiwan's representative to Japan. And on the left there is the current premier, Su tseng chang So they all uh, went on to go into government.
1: Yes, it's very um, interesting and fascinating. Thank you very much, Andrew. And that is our Taiwan Explained for this week.
0: Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan.